Good morning, everybody. God bless you. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, you should raise your hand and someone could hand you one. There's usually them in the seat backs in front of you. Matthew 26. We're going to be picking up in verse one. But just to give you some kind of hope, um, we're in chapter 26. And if you flip right, you'll notice there are 28 chapters in Matthew. But just to give you a reality check, there are 75 verses in chapter 26. Uh, 27 has 66 verses. But don't worry, chapter 28 only has 20. So 161 verses uh, until we complete our study of Matthew. And I feel like we should have a party after that. And so, you know, the time is near, but you do not know the day nor the hour. And so (laughs) be ready. (laughs) I know how to do it. So just to put everything back into context in our time in God's word in the study of Matthew, uh, we've just finished what is called the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 on the end times. And remember chapters 21 through 28. So look at your Bible physically, look at chapter 21. And then kind of flip through and see, find chapter 28 and pinch those together. One person's doing it. Oh, we are clicking. Sorry. Never mind. You're good. I hear you. I hear you clicking. Chapter 21 through 28. This takes place the week leading up to Jesus's crucifixion. This is in and around Jerusalem, mostly taking place in Jerusalem, sometimes, uh, you know, on the, on the, in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem or uh, on the, on the Mount of Olives, right outside of Jerusalem. So it's all taking place in Jerusalem right there um, at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so chapters 21 through 23, if you look back right before the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has been confronting the various leaders of Israel Remember, everybody's gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, which is a week long feast that everybody's required to as a Jew to go to once a year. Basically, males and their families would come. So everybody's gathered in Jerusalem for that week. And as Jesus is there, the Pharisees start confronting him. The Sadducees start confronting him. The Herodians start confronting him. All the the, the elders of Israel, all the different factions of political leaders within Israel start confronting him. And one by one, he refutes them pointing out their hypocrisy in front of the people, uh, painting pictures with parables about them. And so Jesus has been speaking publicly to the crowds in the temple courts while the nation is gathered together. And he says to them, and in chapter 23, verse three, he says, Hey, listen, when it comes to what the law of Moses says, when they teach the law of Moses, you obey it, but don't do what they do because they preach, but they do not practice. And so he's pointing out their hip- hypocrisy to everybody, the, the hypocrisy of the leadership. And in chapter 23, Jesus then goes on and he absolutely eviscerates the scribes and the Pharisees who were basically the ones who were the major players teaching in the local synagogues. And he says about, says to them, he gives them seven woes. And we went through that and he says, whoa. And a woe was like, 
you have such reason to be sorrowful because sudden destruction is going to come upon you for who you are and what you've done. You guys need to dread and be sad for everything that's coming upon you. And he points it all out in every single circumstance. It was because there was a hypocrisy. And he finishes in verse 37 of chapter 23. And he says, he's just crying. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to him. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So Jesus, here he is, the Messiah sent to the people of Israel is rejected by those who were supposed to be actually teaching towards his return and, and embracing him. And he says, I long to embrace you, but you were not willing. And just like the prophets before you that you killed, you're going to kill the actual Messiah. He says, verse 39, he said, well, 38, he says, see your house is left desolate to you. And in other words, he's speaking about the destruction that's going to come upon them. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and kind of as we alluded to uh, in what he would then go into in chapters 24 and 25 about, well, when, when will that be? When will they see him again at his return in this coming in to his kingdom. And he, and he teaches 24 and 25 about all of that. And they will not see him until he comes into his kingdom. And that's at the end of his return. And then they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So all of Israel will be saved, so to speak. They'll not all of them, but they will come to a national recognition that Jesus is actually their Messiah at the end of that time. And he will usher in his earthly kingdom. And so he goes and speaks in 24 and 25, right after confronting everybody and all this stuff. And he goes up on the hill and he talks to his guys and they're asking him questions about that. And he gives the message we just went through for several weeks. And it's immediately after that, picking up in chapter 26, verse one, where it says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, 24 and 25, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son will be a son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows in two days, the Passover is coming and he will be crucified. And just to paint the picture of the setting there in Jerusalem, millions have converged upon the city of Jerusalem. Some people think it's up to 3 million at that point. A lot of people in the city of Jerusalem. And they're there for the feast of Passover, a time to remember God's deliverance of the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt. And we're going to get more into the feast itself uh, when we get to verse 17. But in short, the Hebrews were in bondage to the nation of, well, to the people of Egypt. Remember that for 400 years or for the better part of 400 years uh, for a part, they were actually a blessing in the land. And then their new king, a new Pharaoh came about and they forgot all that uh, Joseph had done and all that kind of stuff. And they threw them into slavery. And so they were there for a long time, like as long as our nation's been around, they were in bondage in Egypt and God raised up a deliverer, raised up Moses and Moses came and said, let my people go. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. He commanded Pharaoh to let the people go, but Pharaoh would not comply. And God hardened his heart and, and these things happened. But uh, basically 10 successive plagues came upon Israel. God sent 10 plagues. Uh, one after the other, proving that uh, God, he, Moses was speaking on the authority of God, but also that God meant business. And he was judging Egypt, which also is a type of the world. 
So when you get into revelation, there's parallel there and these plagues come in. And the last of the plagues was that Egypt of Egypt was that there would be the death of the firstborn of every basically man or beast throughout the land. And the only way of escaping that death, that judgment, that final judgment that would come was to obey the Lord's command. And he commanded, if you want to escape this, you've got to sacrifice a lamb, put his blood on the doorpost of your, um, of your home or wherever you were, your dwelling and go into inside and eat the lamb and eat the unleavened bread and have the cup and you wait while God's judgment will pass over you. But if you do not have the blood of the lamb on the door, you're going to experience the judgment of God. And so the destroying angel came that night and there was a great crying throughout all of Egypt as the firstborn who did not have the blood of a lamb on their doorpost died. And so the ones who believed and obeyed the Lord, the judgment passed over them. And thus the, the celebration of Passover, that's what it is the Passover of God's judgment. And it was after this, that Pharaoh sent the Hebrews into the wilderness said, get out of here. And we know the story. They went to the dead sea and God parted it. And Pharaoh came after him and all that kind of stuff. And they closed in on them. And the Hebrews were there and for 40 years in the wilderness and the Hebrews later called Jews, which means the people of Judah. That's that's how they were later called that in the old Testament, somewhere in Deuteronomy, the people of the land of Judah were commanded by the Lord in Deuteronomy 16 to remember this deliverance through a seven day feast every year. And the main event of the Passover celebration is a Passover feast where they would all gather that night like Jesus was doing in the upper room to celebrate and remember God's deliverance of them from Israel. But what they were looking back to God purposed as a foreshadowing of his true deliverance, not from Egypt, but from sin and from the judgment of God because of sin. And it wasn't going to come about through a lamb that is sacrificed and his blood is on the door. It was coming through a different lamb of which John speaks of in John chapter one, when he sees Jesus, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who sins, uh, who will take away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the foresh- uh, the lamb in the Passover is the foreshadowing of Jesus. And the picture is that those who believe in Jesus Christ, who died and his blood was shed, his blood is on our hearts. It's over our lives. And as we have our life in him, as we feast upon his flesh, as we drink his blood and you're going, well, that's, Im- that's crazy imagery. It's like, yeah, that's on purpose that our life, everything we are is in him. He he has saved us from the wrath of God. He saved us from our sin. He saves us from the the wrath of God. Well, how did we do that? What did we do to earn that? Nothing. We believed in God's sacrifice and his blood covers our sins. That's just amazing picture. Don't you believe that's the gospel. And so while the Jews were looking back to remember the Passover, It was actually foreshadowing what was happening that week that Jesus was saying in two days, the Passover is coming and I'm going to be crucified. That's what was going on. Not 
lamb that would be sacrificed, although thousands, maybe millions of lambs were sacrificed there. But the lamb, the son of God, the one without blemish, the one without sin, the perfect for the guilty. And he was destined to die in two days. And Jesus knew it, that whoever believes upon him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And so Jesus knows that he's going to, he is the lamb. He knows that his death is coming in two days. Jesus's death was not on man's timetable. It was on God's God's in control. It was prophesied about in the old Testament in in many ways. If you read Psalm 22, I'm not going to go through it now. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. There are many other places that foreshadow and paint the future picture of his death. Genesis 22. Remember when Abraham took Isaac, his only son went to a mountain where he would sacrifice him, but he didn't right? God withheld his hand and he said, Hey, hold it there. He says, I will provide myself a sacrifice. And on that very spot, Mount Moriah, the son of God, several thousand years later would be sacrificed. It was a foreshadowing, a forepicture of that Genesis 40, Joseph and the cupbearer. And if you ever noticed that um, one was a bread, uh, bake, was a baker with bread and one was a wine tester. You ever noticed that? And one would die in three days and the other would be restored in three days. These pictures are all over the Old Testament, everywhere. Exodus 12, you have the Passover. Jonah, the story of Jonah. Jesus speaks about Jonah, says, I'm not going to give any sign to this generation except for the sign of Jonah, who was dead in the belly of the whale for three days and yet kind of rose again there. And so the law of the prophets foretold that the Messiah would die for the sins of his people. Jesus had already told his disciples three times. Jesus wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is coming up. He knew exactly what was going on. In Matthew 16, 21 through 28, he says to them, hey, it's coming. In Matthew 17, 22, he says, this is about to happen. And then in chapter 20, verse 17 through 19, he tells them again. And then now, right now, the night, two nights before he's crucified, he says, and so God destined Jesus to die on the Passover. And there was nothing that any person, human or supernatural any could do anything to stop it. This was happening and all things worked together for his purposes at that time, because Jesus was the substance of the shadow of Passover. Passover was a shadow, but the substance that caused the shadow, the reality of Passover was Jesus Christ, the lamb of God to be sacrificed. And so right after telling them on the Mount of Olives, everything that was going to happen right before he comes into his kingdom about the end times, he says, first, I got to die. And that's where we are in 26 one. He says, then in verse three, he says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Again, these were all the religious and political leaders. They were gathering together. By the way, they were political enemies and they were all gathering together at the chief priests, 
Caiaphas's palace or his house. And, and we are now introduced to a key player in Jesus's crucifixion, a guy named Caiaphas. You've heard of him before. He is the high priest. Caiaphas was the son-in-law, son-in-law of a guy, another guy you've heard, another high priest named uh, Annas, right? Or Nias, as they say in other places. And Annas basically was the patriarch of the family. And he had five sons or five son-in-laws or five son, you know, just five descendants basically within his family that would become high priests. And so this was a dynasty. So sometimes you're hearing, wait, who's high priest? Is it Caiaphas or is it Annas? And it's kind of like president Bush senior and president Bush junior. They're both called Mr. President, so to speak. Although one is actually acting president, they all kind of have political sway and Ananias and Caiaphas both had tremendous political sway. And if you remember, uh, the priesthood were a part of a a political group called the Sadducees. Sadducees were ultra liberal in their understanding of scripture. They denied the supernatural. They only held to the first five books of the new Testament. They kind of pick and choose what they wanted out of there. And they really denied the rest of it. And they were the ones who were uh, in charge of the priesthood. They were in charge of the priesthood. They were, they were the um, aristocrats, the really well-to-do families. And there was just this political power they had in that day. And Caiaphas, I think he was a Roman puppet in the high priesthood. And it was Caiaphas, it was Ananias and Caiaphas and these guys who were the ones controlling the temple. They were the ones doing all the money changing in the temple. They'd, they'd made it a racket. And Jesus just a couple days earlier or a day earlier comes in and flips over the temple and, and he's disrupting their income. They don't like that. That's the second time he did. He did it first when he first came about. And now he did it here at the end of his ministry. So don't get confused by Caiaphas and Ananias, but Caiaphas was the main guy and they're headed to his house or his palace. And I think it's important to remember here that the chief priests who are with them, that's the leaders among the priests. They're gathered together as well as the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the elders of Israel. The elders of Israel were all those groups put together, the governing body of Israel, the 70 leaders. So this is a big deal. And they're all gathering together to find out when they're going to kill Jesus. These are the ones who are supposed to be ushering in the kingdom. They're the ones who are supposed to be pointing people to Jesus. And what are they doing? They want to kill him because he is drawing people's attention away to them instead of him, uh, them. Sorry. And so they're all gathered together. And when they gathered together, verse five, verse five, they said, we don't want to kill him during the feast, arrest him and kill him, lest there be an uproar among the people. They don't want to do it among in the feast because they want to control what's going on. They don't want all the people to get mad and upset because a lot of people like Jesus, that was their plan. Again, people were divided over Jesus. A lot of people today are divided over Jesus. And these men didn't want their murderous plot to take place during the actual Passover feast. And so according to Luke 22, two, they were trying to figure out the timing at this meeting. That's what they're doing. They're getting together to find out when they were going to arrest and kill Jesus because they already had 
an opportunity that had come to them, which we're going to learn about in verse 14. By this point, they had already had two days before the Passover. They already had someone in their pocket. And we all know who that is. It's Judas. So, but before then we come to verse six, and I know this is kind of confusing. He tells us in the first few verses, it's two days before the Passover. He says, listen, they're all gathered together, but I'm in, I'm now in verse six. Matthew's going to jump back to six days before the Passover. Follow me. He's, he's going to do a cutback scene. Oh, and earlier in the story and they move, he jumps back six days before six days before we actually know that because you're going to flip over to your Bible to John 12, keep there in Matthew 26 and you're going to go to John 12. Yes, I know. It's so hard. Just a few pages, right? <laughs> Do it. Come on. Don't be lazy. Spiritually strong. Let's go. So the beginning of Matthew 26 is two days before the Passover. But we come to verse six, which takes place six days before the Passover, according to John's account in John 12. It's the same, it's the same story. But John gives us the timeline. In the first several verses of John 12, he, he records the same events. And so we know what's happening. And so he takes us back a few days in verse six with your finger in John chapter 12. I'm going to read Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, uh, in verse six, sorry. Yeah. Verse six of, of Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, just follow along with me here. It says now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper. So we find out Jesus is in Bethany. He's at the Simon. He's at the house of Simon, the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask full of expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head and rec- as he reclined at the table. So Jesus is in the village of Bethany, which is right outside Jerusalem. And this is where Lazarus, uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived. John 12 tells us, look up, look at John 12. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came, therefore came to Bethany verse one, where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, right? That's where they were. Verse two of John 12. And so they gave a dinner for him there. And we know where that dinner was held at Simon, the leper's house, whoever that was. Right. Someone who got Simon, the former leper, Martha. And so they gave a dinner for him and Martha served and Lazarus was the one of those reclining with Jesus at the table who just was raised from the dead. And so John lets us know at this point, the dinner was in Jesus's honor. It was held by Lazarus and Martha and Mary at a man's house named Simon. And Matthew tells us that a woman poured a very expensive flask of oil on Jesus's head. Who was this woman? Yeah, we know that because of John 12, right? John 12 verse three, it says Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed what the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Wait a second. What does Matthew say? Oh, the head. So the Bible's false. If you and I are both at an event and we see something happen, what do we, what, how do you know that there's, there's the event really happened? 
is that each person's going to paint a picture that creates the whole story. We know a woman was there and the, that happened, but someone's going to go focusing on one part of the event. And John Matthew goes, Oh, he poured it on her head. And then John goes and he poured it on her feet. So which was it? Both. That's exactly what happened. Then we have this picture, Mary, the sister of Lazarus anointing the head and the feet of Jesus. Mary, what do we know about Mary? She's always what? At the feet of Jesus. She's always worshiping Jesus. She took her most costly possession. Had to have been an alabaster jar of costly perfume and broke it and poured it on Jesus's head. Matthew says pure worship church. This is worship. I, I, you know, I just, I've learned so much from, from Mary and I'm continuing to learn from Mary, the sister of Lazarus. There's a lot of Mary's in the Bible, but our sister's heart here, Matthew and Mark say she poured it on his head and John says she anointed his feet and you get the full picture there. Mary, Mary pours out everything she has in total worship. She's just abandoned in worship to the Lord Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And the perfume flask was broken. It was poured out. Have you ever like, I remember at, was that cost plus or whatever that is, or world market down in San Diego, hun, whatever. Someone actually hit like a, a wine display and wine fell over. And it was like a strong red wine. And you're just like, Oh my gosh. The whole place was just smelled like wine. It was just so full when that was broken and you know, you know, perfume can be pretty crazy, but can you imagine in that room that someone just takes a whole thing of perfume, breaks it and pours it out. What that place must've smelled like. It was just everywhere on his head and she pours it on his feet. And what does John say about what she does? What's she doing? She's taking her hair and she's wiping his feet. What possessed Mary's heart and mind to have her offer so much and to worship so deeply and so openly and so profoundly and so humbly. You know, in a similar event earlier in Luke seven with a different woman, she was a prostitute. She did the same in total humility to Jesus and everybody in the room got gone on her case. And Jesus said of her as she wiped his feet with her tears in Luke seven forty seven. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Who did she love? Jesus. But he was forgiven little, loves little. I think Mary had a deep sense of God's grace in her life. Church. 
man, we are forgiven a debt that is insurmountable. We're not here because we're all well put together and because we're finished. We're here because of the grace of God that poured over us in our lives and continues to so deep, so profound, so overwhelming, so thoroughly cleansing such love. I think Mary had a deep sense of God's grace in her life. I think Paul had a deep sense of God's grace in his life. You know, when Paul was talking about all he did, all he did, he was talking to the other, other apostles. He says, listen, I've done more than all the other apostles. You're reading that and you're going, what? He goes, not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul was the one walking around murdering Christians and imprisoning them and all these things. And Jesus came to him and his blood thoroughly cleansed them. And in that grace propelled him into such worship and such a service for the rest of his life. Listen, when we're talking about things like the talent in the ground and those who are saved and not saved and it's proven out and all that stuff, what are we talking about? Listen, believers respond to the grace of God. That's, that's who we are. It's shown by his love for us and what he's done. It's, it, it has to translate into life. As fallen as we are. Amen. amen. And so listen, worship like this is something that can't be forced. When we gather together and we're singing songs, you can't manipulate that into people. You can't conjure that up. That is either in you or it is not. And when it's not, you have to ask the question, what, why not? And I would say, you just don't understand the grace of God in your life, Matt. Amen. Amen. I'm not judging. I'm just saying there is a response to God's grace and it is worship. Not just singing, but a life that, well, the more he shows you his holiness, I wrote this down. The more his, he, he shows you y'all me too, right? The more he shows you his holiness, the more he shows you your great debt, the more he shows you his great sacrifice and his great love and immeasurable grace towards you. This is the work of the spirit as he reveals these things to us. The more of a worshiper of Jesus you become. That makes sense the more you realize that he is so worthy of all that you have and all that you are. Mary poured out that costly perfume on Jesus. And this made me think that I often do things for Jesus, which is right and good. I am a Martha. Anyone else a Martha? Like Mary's sister. She was serving dinner. Mary was worshiping. Both are needed. Amen. So I'm not discounting Martha, but there is a point to Mary that the spirit is making. But how often do I do something to Jesus in the sense that it's just to him and for him with a heart of thankfulness, just him. Yes. He says, if you love me, you're going to love one another. That's the practical. That's that, that should be the, the operating thing. But there is a, is there that quiet 
by yourself, loving the Lord offering that happens in our lives out of a heart full of thankfulness and love. Listen, the perfume that she gave, by the way, was costly. And she went to her perfume cabinet and took out the thing that would cost her the least and offered it to Jesus and poured it out. She went, (laughs) well, what do you think that would have been? The perfume is costly. 300 denarii, the other gospels say, John 12, 5. And the scholars say a denarii, one denarii was a laborer's day's wage. We've gone over that before. 300 denarii. So 365 days in a year. And it's a better part of a year's salary. And she broke it and poured it on Jesus's head and his feet. Mary's worship of Jesus was costly to her. Why was it costly to her? The value of Jesus to her was reflected in the way and with what she worshiped him. I think there's a direct correlation there. This is where pastors come then to say to you, now give me your money. Get poured out on Jesus. Pour out what is costly upon him is worth everything. What is that? I don't know. Don't offer your broken sheep, your three-legged lamb. It's reflected. His value is reflected in our offerings. And this is convicting to me. Amen. 300 denarii. Mary's worship of Jesus was costly to her. The value of Jesus to her was reflected in the way and with what she worshiped him. I love the story of second Samuel 24, where David is buying the threshing floor to, I think buy the, to build the eventual temple. He's buying the land around there in Jerusalem. He's buying it from a guy named uh, Arana or something. And Arana says to, to David, Hey, I'm going to give it to you. You got it. I think there's a Jewish bartering thing going on, but he says, I'm going to give it to you. And David responds in second Samuel 24, 24 saying, no, I will buy it from, uh, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord. My God, that cost me nothing. I think we're duped by American Christianity. And that this is about what you can get out of it. What I can get out of it. Not what we can give. To him. To one another. In worship. Because he's so great. Isn't that different? You know how you don't offer, you don't do, you don't have, you don't. So therefore I'm not going to, I hear that all the time. Well, come give your life away. Come serve the kids. Oh, but that's just not manipulating you. I'm just saying I run through the reasons why I don't do stuff as a pastor. Anybody? I've got my list. Anybody else? 
You're like, oh, you get up there to preach. Yeah, but I got a lot of things that Jesus calls me to. And I go, eh. <laughs> yeah, Lord, but don't you know, I do this for you. And I spiritualize things. There was an understanding in David's heart that his offering reflected his heart. And that's tied to his view of God. And I would say if we offer cheaply and we serve cheaply and we're invested cheaply, it's because we understand the grace of God as cheap. And I can't do anything but preach that truth, but it's the Holy spirit who has to change that in the heart of a people in a church and in my heart. Amen. So please do not take this as manipulation, but just mutual everybody kind of going, Oh Lord. <laughs> yeah. Change me. Show yourself as greater. Show us your grace more deeply. And so I can love you more fully, you know? So what do we do with our talents? I hit it in the ground. Where do you take them and go? Oh, he's so awesome. I'm going to pour them all out because he will repay and because he's worthy and what he's done. So I think Mary had a proper view of Jesus. Do we, what do you think the response of everybody in the room is? Oh man. Yeah. I should be doing that. Let's keep it on Jesus. Isn't he so awesome? Verse eight. And when the disciples saw it back in Matthew 26, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? Uh Oh, for this could have been sold for a large sum of money given the poor. Now we know who's behind this. Matthew doesn't tell us, but John 12, five through eight does look at John 12, five. Who's talking Judas. And he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Well, look at verse six. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Things the other disciples didn't know at the time, but they would soon find out that he was a hypocrite. Mark tells us that he said this among, they said this among themselves. And so I don't know if it was audible or it was mummering or it was actually heard, but Jesus knew what was going on. And it seems like it was a view that caught on among the disciples, but back to verse 10, Matthew 26, it says, but Jesus aware of this said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you but she will not always have me. Jesus, Judas despised the, the waste. He called it waste because of his own greed. Our hearts are tricky. Aren't they? Why we don't worship God. Why we withhold things from God. Why we do X, Y, and Z. I'm preaching against myself right now. So don't take, you know, Why? I struggle with Judas issues. Anybody else? Yeah. Listen, when we worship God wholeheartedly as a church, you know, and individually, 
openly and wholeheartedly and sacrificially, when we're giving and loving him, the enemy is right there to shut that down and redirect it away from Jesus back towards you, back towards me. That's what he's up to. And he'll use good things in the place of what is most good. And we can come to, we can have a thousand excuses of why we're not going to worship, why we're not going to be together, why we're not going to evangelize. And there can all be really good reasons. Oh, I've got this family, this event, this thing. Oh, I don't want to, you know, I've got it. Blah, 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 blah. How many of you have those things? Anyone else? Yeah, me too. Listen, when we worship God wholeheartedly and openly, the enemy is right there to shut it down. He wants to redirect it back to the, us, back to us and away from Jesus. Jesus says to them, you're always going to have the poor, but I'm not going to be here long. And this is what he's talking about. This is what the focus is that he's about to die. He isn't dismissing taking care of the poor. Does that sound like Jesus to you? No, but he's saying right now, This is the most important thing. I'm right here. And in six days, I'll be gone, so to speak. Again, Matthew's taking us back a few days because for two reasons, Jesus is about to die. And Judas is going to be the means in which he's betrayed. And he's painting that picture of worship and selfishness. Verse 12 in pouring out this ointment on my body, Jesus says she has done it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You have just heard fulfilled prophecy. Not because of me, because Jesus said it would happen. And here it is. (laughs) 2000 years removed on another continent in a different language. And Jesus's words in verse 13 are true. And notice he says, it's, it's preparing my body for, it's anointing my body for burial. Jesus knew it was coming. So at the beginning of his ministry, he was anointed by the spirit in several places to, uh, uh, well, at, at his baptism to preach and to, uh, and to heal and to proclaim the kingdom and all these things. And you can read about those in Luke three twenty two and Luke four eighteen. And now he's anointed in his death for his death and his suffering. So it's a beautiful thing that this anointing was that preparation, preparation for that, which was coming in six days. Then verse 14, the one, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And that's what they were discussing two nights before the Passover. Judas had just come to them four days prior to that at this event and was saying, Notice what happened in his heart. He saw all that waste. He would, he called waste because it didn't go to him. And he went to go after money. Judas's heart was, you can't love God or money. And he loved money. And that's what happened. And he went to the priest, even to betray them, to get what he wanted. Heart is wicked. He's a lover of money, not a lover of God. And, and, he was ready to be used by the enemy and the enemy would possess him. Satan would enter him that night of the last supper. And Jesus would say, go do what you're going to do. 
and the enemy would fill him and, and he would do that. Here's the thing. Jesus knew Judas's heart all along. Isn't that strange? It was prophesied, Zechariah 11, 12, in 13, about the 30 pieces of silver, Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 55, 12 through 14, all those verses about a close friend betraying. In John 6, 66, <laughs> you want to have a weird verse, flip over to John 6, 66. And after this, that is after Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked after him. That's a 666 verse. If you ever had one, his disciples no longer following after him. I don't think that's by mistake. John 667. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go his way as well? Speaking to the 12, who is among the 12? Judas. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed that you've come to know that you are the Holy one of God. And Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of, of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot for he, one of the 12 was going to betray him. He knew all along what was going on. He knew it was in his heart and yet he loved him. You know, regardless of Satan's scheme and Judas's betrayal and the leaders of Israel and God's timing of his son dying on the Passover, that was not going to change. Nothing could stop it. In the stuff we see in the Middle East right now, remember we just talked wars and rumors of wars and what's happening. And what does Jesus say about that stuff? Yeah, that's, that's bad. And he says in the end is not yet. So when we look at all these things happening, what do we say? The end is not yet. It's just as he said it would be. I'm not saying it's not horrific. It is absolutely horrible. I hate it. The Lord knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly the timing and nothing is going to stop his return. He is coming to judge the living and to judge the dead. And nothing can stop his promise that whoever believes upon Jesus Christ shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can stop that. It is his promise today to you until that day he closes the door on your life or he returns grabs us. So man, crazy stuff, huh? Awesome stuff. Jesus is headed towards the cross and that's where we're headed. And over the next several verses, you're going to see all this play out, but notice God's in control. Satan is behind the scenes, manipulating people behind leadership of nations. 
He's causing difficult circumstances among believers and all these things. He's at work. The enemy is at work and he is influencing people and pushing people. He is the God of this age, lowercase G. He is the prince of the power of the air that works in the sons and daughters of disobedience. He's at work, but God is at work. The light is shining in the darkness right now. And he wants to shine through you. Amen. He has shined to you. Now he wants to shine through you. Go be lights. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's precious. And we ask for your strength in these times. We ask for your mercy upon us, God. We ask that our, our hearts would not grow dim. Our witness would not grow dim, but we would, we would grow brighter as we see the day approaching. We pray that we'd be a city on a hill and we wouldn't be hidden, but we would shine more and more and more. And Lord, uh, as we look at these things that you've already shown us here to, to uh, this morning, Lord, that our hearts would just respond in worship. Show us where you are been so gracious to us and been so merciful. God, open our understanding to that and let us respond, God, in true and beautiful worship to you and how we live and what we say and what we do and the manner in which we do it with the time we have left all for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you church. Have a wonderful week. Woo. Yeah.